Father, I thank you for the work that your son Jesus Christ has done in each one of us who truly know him. That we have been set free, that we walk in righteousness, that we have all the power we need to walk by your spirit and to choose to please you, to make a difference in this world, to let other people see Christ in us. And so as we close up this little book of Habakkuk, we're looking to you to, again, um, clarify to us what it's trying to say, help us to realize, remember that as your word says, the Old Testament gives us hope in uh, Romans 15.4. It uh, sets an example for us in 1 Corinthians 10. It's profitable. It is um, breathed out from you. And so for doctrine, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, we can grow up in you. But help us to remember, too, as we come here, and as I joke about being sleepy, um, we struggle with distractions. We struggle with other opportunities. We struggle with um, not putting you first, uh, even to the point of staying up too late or um, not spending time in your word, and on and on it goes. So we need your help. We need you to challenge us and to push us in the right direction. But thank you, Father, for being faithful. Thank you for providing all of our needs. And uh, thank you for this time in your word. As we close off this letter, may it, may it be clear what you want us to do and how we can put it into practice. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we stretched Habakkuk out as far as we could go. We're down to the last four verses. Chapter 1, we saw the plan. Habakkuk crying out about sin. God says, I'm going to take care of it, and explaining he was going to use the Chaldeans. Not a good plan, according to Habakkuk. Then we saw the punishment in chapter 2. Sinners are going to be judged, including the Chaldeans. Five woes pronounced against them. You do not want a woe pronounced against you from God. You do not want to take that lightly. And so as we look at our world today, especially in Isaiah Five, and he pronounces a number of woes against Judah at the time, um, we realize America's in the same position. Woe unto them who call evil good and good evil. Uh, they pull sin, as it were, with a cart rope. It's like they're dragging it around with them. They want to make sure their sin is wherever they need to be or go. And um, many other things are stated there. And it's a world we're living in. So as we stressed in recent weeks, we have to work hard at resisting what is trying to encroach into our lives. And, and we aren't here just to survive and just to, you know, keep the encroachment out. We're here to make a difference. To, we are light. We are salt. Everybody says you ought to be light and salt. We are. You go back to the Sermon on the Mount. He's not telling you to become something. He's telling you to be who you are and let people see it. And I think that's what Habakkuk's finally coming down to here in this letter is he recognizes the... Chapter 3, the praise that he brings up, the fact that the righteous are going to be delivered uh, because they walk by faith, they walk in their faithfulness. And so Habakkuk went through a radical change and transformation, and nothing had happened yet, apart from the sin that was already there. The pressure, the um, invasion of the Chaldeans had not happened yet. Didn't even know as far out, uh, as far as how long it was going to take before they showed up. But don't you hate that? When you know something bad's coming... And you have no idea when. It's kind of like uh, your uh, high school or even junior high when the, when the bully said, I'm going to get you. And then you lived in fear. 
and you looked all around and you made sure mom picked you up if she had a car or you walked home with your buddies or something like that happened. And this is where Habakkuk's at in a physical way, but he's now he's bringing out the other side of it. So look at the contrast. He's being honest. This is missing a lot in our lives in this day that we're living in. Habakkuk says in verse 16 of chapter 3, he said, I heard, and there's a ton packed into that, I heard and my inward parts trembled at the sound my lips quivered. Decay entered my bones and in my place I tremble. Pretty vivid description of what's going on. What, what does it take for you to hear to become that way? And just to be scared stiff. And so the, the need here is to recognize this hearing is he listened to and understood God's message. Remember back in Habakkuk 1 when God was trying to get his attention? Uh, well, Habakkuk started off frustrated, but God answers in verse 5 of Habakkuk 1. And he says, look among the nations, observe. Be astonished and wonder because I'm doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their injustice and authority originate with themselves. Verse 11, then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. So he gives them both sides. What's coming is what we call the spanking stick that God was going to get Judah's attention with. At the same time, he said, I'm not leaving them unpunished. These bullies are going to have their day, their day in court, and it's not going to be a good day. And so he reacts to all of this physical um, harm that's coming with great alarm. He's picked it up, he's taken in the message, and here he responds with how he feels. He said, my inward parts trembled. Literally, my belly, and someone to describe this in some of your versions as my body, was agitated, was quivering, his, his heart's pounding. You have this, this strong reaction to what's coming. What do we call that today? Kind of like hyperventilating? <laughs> and you, you see the heart rate go up, and what are some other terms? Anxiety attack. Panic attack. So great fear is here. This is where he's at, and he's being honest. He's laying it out. And that's the first step he points out. He said, at the sound of God's voice, and literally at the sound of God's message, at the reminder of what's coming upon us, and when God says something, what happens? It takes place. You better believe. If you're not a believer, if you haven't received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you're acting like God doesn't exist or his word isn't true, or he makes exceptions, kind of grades on the curve, as some people want to say. That doesn't work like that. The world does that. The world water is, waters it down. The, the world lets you off for whatever their motivations are today when the, when the guilty are being set free and the innocent are being punished, just like Isaiah 5. But he's reacting to God's voice. This message is very clear, and Habakkuk knows it's true as God's prophet. So he responds, secondly, as his inward parts trembled at the sound, my lips quivered. My speech was shaky out of sheer terror. You ever been that way? I was reading out of um, J. Vernon McGee's commentary, and he was talking about that um, example in this passage of having a... Um, catching a guy as a peeping Tom at his girlfriend's house and getting a gun from her dad. Not at her dad's permission, it sounded like, but he goes after the guy, 
tries to run him down, and all of a sudden he can't find him, and it's super quiet, and he's standing there listening, listening, and the next thing he knows, this guy jumps up on the fence right where he's standing, and he looks up, and it's like, <laughs> he said he just shook with fear. He couldn't talk. He couldn't respond. Good thing he didn't shoot him. He did shoot the gun, but not at the guy, and so you're, you're recognizing this, this um, fear here that takes over when he cannot talk. His lips are shaking in terror. They're trembling so bad he cannot get the words out. Kind of like you were when you asked your wife to marry you. Is that what happened? Close, okay. Oh, it never comes out like you planned, so. Yeah. Or the other way around, when you ask your husband to marry you, or whatever it may be. But, but there's, a, there's a struggle going on verbally, and this is Habakkuk. And you think, Habakkuk, you're a prophet of God. Pull yourself together. What is your problem? He was being real. If God gave you a glimpse, you, you, have you watched the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years in America? You go back 50 years and there's things happening today that you would have told people, I will give my, my life if this ever happens because it cannot happen. Cannot happen. So if God gave you a little window into the next 10 years, would you want to see it? You think it's bad now? If America doesn't repent, and where it's heading, is they all think, the, the evil people, the wicked, all think they're the good guys. They think Christians are the ones causing trouble and stirring up, just like they did in Rome. It's no different. It's what they accused the believers in Nazi Germany of being, and they went after them. It's no different. So if he could give a glimpse, you might go back and say, my inward parts are trembling, my lips are quivering. I, 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 I don't even know what to say. And then you would recognize, as he puts here, decay enters my bones. This rottenness, this sickness is coming upon the frame that's supposed to hold everything together, and it's rotting. It's disintegrating. It's falling apart. And so here he is describing, in my place... Where I stand, I tremble. Where I stand, I'm so agitated and quivering. I'm shaking in my boots is kind of a description we use to the same thing. This usually only shows up on Disney cartoons. You notice when, when somebody threatens them with a big gun or whatever and, and the guy's knees are going. You can do that really well with a cartoon. But it, it, it's real in life too. People struggle with the same thing. And this is what he's honestly describing in his physical reaction from an earthly perspective, he's letting them know that the bad times that are coming are seriously impacting me. I don't like what I heard. So he's kind of getting back to chapter one. There he was a little more, remember the hands on the hips, kind of like, God, you can't do that. So now he's saying, okay, okay, uh, I, 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 accept, I, accept, I accept it. You hear him? It's bad. And you're going to walk out of here today and you're going to go, eh. It's years away. It might be. But it's bad. And it's coming. So the question isn't, am I going to get mad at God? How dare him allow some wicked group of people to come in and wreak havoc on the United States? He owes us. 
we're the, we're the country that had righteousness, that, that had religion, that had missionaries that went out and told the world. You know that the world now is sending missionaries to the United States? Because they can see it. We're in this little pot that is slowly being heated up with the Bunsen burner. You remember that in high school biology classes? And the frog doesn't jump out? And it's frog legs tonight as they cook with a little bit of butter. It fries them. But if you try to drop that same frog, and they did it in, in class in high school, they dropped it in a Bunsen burner that is bubbling. The frog does, has no trouble jumping instantly out of that. I'm sure it doesn't help the frog any to be in that water for a couple seconds, but, but it responds very, very quickly. And so as he's laying this out, Habakkuk's being honest. Oftentimes what we are not being to God. Oftentimes what we do not want to acknowledge. Or we try to fake it or pretend, oh, no, it's not that bad. Or God would never do that to America. And he says what is brought in here is this rottenness, this sickness, like cancer in his bones. And he's in big trouble. They tell you when, when you have cancer and it gets to your bones, you're in trouble. And so what do we do with that? we got two choices. We can say, thank you. Help me to go through it to your glory. Or we can say, not happening to me. I've been in ministry long enough, a, a number of decades, and at the, used to go to the hospital regularly. Now it's COVID days. But I've been around a little bit of everything at the hospital. Uh, from long-term illness to death to serious suffering to watching believers and unbelievers go through different things. And it's pretty amazing to watch. At the bedsides of a lot of people that were dying, some that died at the time it ha- I was there. And just part of being a pastor. I didn't know that. When I was in, in Bible college and seminary, they didn't say, oh yeah, you, you've, you've got, you'll get to do the funeral. They, they worked on that. But they didn't really work on telling us what it's going to be like to get into a room where somebody is really, really mad at God swearing, blaming him, cursing him in, in ways that you are shocking to people. Now, some of them, I begin to wonder if they're really saved because it's, it's over a long period of time, and you kind of watch. They said, there's nothing happening here that shows them to be a believer. They aren't struggling. They are rebelling. They are out and out not trusting God at all. And then others who were in the exact same situation, and even as teenagers and, and young 20s, which is what everybody said, well, you're not supposed to die then. And to watch them go through cancer and shrivel up. And we get sweeter and sweeter. More and more trusting. More and more not focusing on the physical, but focusing on the spiritual. More and more sharing their faith and excited to meet the Lord. So we have a decision to make. I'll stress to you, we're going to cover Calvinism next week, one week of it. Uh, There are some dangers and what Calvinism teaches that God has to give you faith. And so I'll challenge you between now and next Sunday. Show me a verse that says that. It's even in songs we sing. It's not in Scripture. You are to believe. You are to trust. He gives you every reason to do so, and he's given it to Habakkuk, and it took him a little while. Kind of a shock to his system. And it almost makes you not want to pray. It's like Habakkuk went back and said, Oh, I wish I'd never brought up the sins of Judah. Well, what good would that have been? Well, then I never would have found out the Chaldeans were coming. Well, what good would that have done? Was Judah in sin? Yep. Were the Chaldeans still coming? Yep. 
Are you God's prophet? Yep. Aren't you there to warn them and to prepare them to turn and repent? I don't want to give you a blanket statement, but I will tell you one thing. If we go through the kind of persecution that even this book describes in the United States, it'll be a lot easier for you if you're walking in righteousness. Why is that? Why does God let us go through trials? What are trials even for? Because God just loves to pick on people? Watch, watch this. When I, when I give Fred a, a broken neck, And, and all the angels line up, and they get their popcorn, and they're all kind of sitting there watching. God, God doesn't enjoy that. He didn't enjoy the death of the wicked even, as Ezekiel says. Why do we get trials? To help us to grow up, to mature in Christ. It's a major reason that the book of Hebrews is written. Focus on Jesus Christ, but all of it pushing you toward Christ-likeness. And some of them... Obviously not Christ-like. They're professing it, but they don't possess it. And so as you watch all of this happening, he's not only working with Judah, dealing with her sin, and ultimately promising her that she's going to come out of it as a remnant of the righteous, but he's working on Habakkuk. It's Habakkuk he's teaching. This is why I've been in the ministry for, for the years I've been in. I had a lot of things to learn that I couldn't learn any other way. You guys only needed a couple hours in the Word each week, each day, whatever it was that God wanted you to do. I needed us just to be buried in it because God has so much he wanted to work on in me. Are there trials in any job? Yep. Trials in family life? Yep. This perfect marriage that's coming together and you're going to, we're going to live in bliss. They, they call it that, don't they? Isn't it marital bliss? You want to find out who wrote that, who invented that word, and you want to get a hold of their neck. <laughs> you lied to me. Of course, it's all the man's fault on Father's Day. You have to recognize that. But... Or you get a blank check I heard coming in this morning that, that they were going to give them extra uh, protection and credit and, and um, not pick on them so bad today, but wait till tomorrow. She, she didn't say you're not going to get it tomorrow. All right? So... Walked, walked righteously. And, and this is the struggle that he's honestly dealing with here in this physical perspective. He's being honest. We're not trying to pretend when you're struggling with things that, oh, everything's fine. Cough, cough, as you're dying. It isn't fine physically. But that isn't what you have to focus on. And so he's laying this out and making it clear that his inward parts are trembling, his lips are quivering, his bones are decaying. And he tells you the reason why. He goes into this reason, he says, because it's a connecting link in the Hebrew. It's a causal force is what they want to call it, but it's the idea of since, or because I must wait quietly. I thought he learned that a while back. Didn't he say he was going to climb up in his tower and Watch. What was he watching for? God to change his mind? To make sure this really wasn't going to happen? Surely you're not going to do this, God. And God had to go back, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, have a conversation, kind of discuss this. Are we really going to do this? Is that how it works? No. He told them right up front. And so here he's, he, early on, he's kind of thinking, I can, I can push this the other way. I can make God do the other thing. But now he's finally saying, I've accepted it. 
I can do nothing to stop the Chaldeans from coming in. And what's it going to be like when they enter? As bad as you can imagine. And I don't want to go into some details, but there are some things that are laid out really clearly in Scripture. That I'll get to in a moment. But he says, I must wait quietly. What's he waiting for? For the day of distress. He's describing here this idea of rest and doing nothing as he waits for this time of calamity and trouble. It's destruction of Judah as a nation. Ultimately, I believe, as I shared with you last week, I think this is pointing toward the day of the Lord. Some of that's brought up in Zephaniah, which is a contemporary writer of the day. You see a number of things here that just as Israel was going to go, or Judah was going to go through the destruction of the Chaldeans, the church is going to go through the Great Tribulation. (gasps) You're not allowed to say that. I was raised in a Baptist church. I was saved in a Baptist church. I, I was um, commissioned in a Baptist church. I was a youth pastor in a Baptist church. And then I went off to non-denominational school and realized I didn't want to go back to that. So what I do, I come out, become a pastor in a Baptist church because I thought it was different and it changed. And, and I found it, it wasn't the same. There were so many things being taught to me and, and so many things that didn't line up with Scripture that I went, I can't be there. I, I need to go non-denominational where I can just teach the Word and not teach what traditions or expectations. I remember one guy in a Sunday school class, I, I taught something that he didn't agree with. Man, he got up. And you, if, if it was a cartoon, you would have seen his head red and steam coming off and arrows flying out of it. And that wasn't good enough because he stopped at the doorway going out of the Sunday school class and he had to say something. What had I taught? What was so horrendous? What was so bad? And he's gone now. He, he's passed on. I was a youngster back then, and he was an older gentleman. What was it that was so bad? Uh, You need to come and ask me. Because it wasn't that bad. But it was out of the tradition. It was out of the line of thought. And and same thing when I mentioned here that the church is going to go through through the Great Tribulation, but the church is not going to go through the Day of the Lord. And people's brains start racking, especially my Baptist background. How can that be? Well, go study the Word. Go look and do a study on the Great Tribulation, which only shows up a few times, clearly labeled that way, and the Day of the Lord, which is rampant all through the Old Testament prophets all the way into the New Testament. Paul covered it thoroughly. They're two different things. See, the Day of the Lord is God's judgment, like he's going to do to the Chaldeans eventually, but the Great Tribulation is God's chastisement, allowing the world to come down on the church. Jesus taught him that in John 16, 33. You've memorized that, right? In the world, and I'm just the latter part, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In the world you shall have tribulation. The ellipsis. What's great tribulation worldwide? Mega tribulation. It's, it's bigger and better than just plain old tribulation, but you should be tribulating in your life. It's part of being in this world. It's part of us being stretched and growing. It's part of us in James 1 of rejoicing when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result. Habakkuk, don't run, don't complain, don't fight it, don't try to get out of it. Let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. In regards to what? Christ. All James is pointing toward is Christ's likeness. 
We want, God the Father wants his children to be just like Jesus. That's why today's age is dangerous, really dangerous. Because parents are not putting their children through any trials. They jump at the slightest little noise. They bail them out of anything and everything that may cause a problem. Now, I'm not saying go the other extreme and, you know, your kid falls off their bike and their arm's sliced open and they're bleeding to death. And you say, come on, it's just a little blood. Get back on the bike and let's go. You've you got to find a balance in there. But you, in this age, are being protected. And that's why they flipped. They've gone not just from caring about people that are in bad predicaments. And again, I've been around a lot of them through the years. People that didn't grow up with a dad. Or they were in an orphanage and had a bad situation. Some orphanages are good. But they've gone through a lot of things, and you come along and go, oh, well, well, we can't put them in jail. They've already had a rough life. Well, what did they do? Well, they murdered somebody. But, but we can't put them in jail. So what are you going to do? Well, we're going to let them out. And what are they going to do next week? I'll murder somebody. But we're working with them. We, we give them time. You know, how many murders? And I, I'm extreme, or going to an extreme here, but, but it's the idea, God is not playing games with sin. Regardless of what your background is, all of us can point to things that weren't good. And sometimes in the struggle, and what I'm trying to lead you up with here, is when God allows something bad to happen to you, you blame it on God instead of saying thank you and looking for how he's going to use that. Because God causes all things to work together for good to those who are loving him and being called according to his purpose. So Habakkuk's learning that. He's being stretched. Physically, realistically, as he looks at what's going on here, he knows the need he has. Look back at chapter 2. This is what God had revealed in Habakkuk 2, verses 2 to 4. Here's here's God answering him earlier. When the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision, Habakkuk, and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. It's going to happen, Habakkuk. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. And then down in verse 20, he closes off the chapter by saying, But the Lord, Yahweh, is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. That's what matters. It's what God thinks of a given situation. It's what God wants to do. And so in your life as you become a believer, I was brought along by great teachers and reminded regularly that you are surrendering your life to God. That means everything. Your money, your time, whether or not you ever get married. I was almost 27 when I got married. And marital bliss. And you start wondering, I told God, okay, If you want me single, I'll be single. And I pursued what he wanted me to do. And so you're accepting what God wants to do. And this is where we recognize it's Yahweh who's in his holy temple. It's not Jack. It's not you. I don't get to be the person like Habakkuk was trying to be to direct things. And so he's finally coming along and he's accepted this fact that I must wait quietly. I have to rest and can do nothing because it is coming. It is needed and he specifically says there, for the day of distress, for, a people to, for the people to arise, and he knows who they are, this nation of Chaldeans, Babylonians, 
wicked, fierce, impetuous. Go to chapter 6 or 1-6, following what we already read. And he says they're going to invade us. They're going to come up against us in war. They're going to attack us, and they're going to take control of everything. Everything. What do you think is an absolute necessity in your life? They're going to take it away. Maybe it's your life. Your children, your possessions, your money, your health. And when they do it laughing at you, when they do it mocking you like they did Jesus on the cross, it makes it even harder. And the tendency is for us on the inside, the flesh to rise up and to fight it. And who am I really fighting? God. God told Habakkuk, I'm sending them. I'm using them. But then what did he do with Daniel and the three sons and the fiery furnace and, and others? You can follow along there. God took care of them. This is where the righteousness in our lives matters. You kind of get along and Satan tempts you and says, well, what's, what's one little sin? It's Monday. You have all week to get this cleaned up before you go to church again. Or it's a letdown because you did so well on Sunday, you were so victorious, and then you go, I gotta have a little bit of me time. Don't do it. It's a lie of the devil. It doesn't satisfy. Sin brings pleasure. Sin brings success. Sin brings enjoyment. Sin brings victory. Is that what the Bible teaches? If you go back and you watch all these individuals, same thing, I, I'm sorry, I've got Calvinism on the brain because I've already started studying it. And, and they want to tell you that if you're an unbeliever that you are spiritually dead. But they mean you're mentally dead. And I go back and I started doing a study and going, well, Cain wasn't unable to respond. In fact, God even tells him in Genesis 4, sin is crouching at the door. If you do what's right, wait a minute, that's Cain. Cain is an evil man. You find it later in Scripture. Why is God having a conversation with this evil man to begin with? Because he needed him to repent, wanted him to repent. What does he offer Cain? Choices. No, he's dead. He can't, he, doesn't, can't, he can't choose. He's waiting on God to give him faith. Well, then why is God offering him choices? And you go into many of them, tells Abimelech and some others that are along the way, definite unbelievers, you better make a decision. That's Abraham's wife. You touch her, you die. <gasps> but Abimelech's dead. He can't reason. He doesn't know any better. That's almost how it's presented, and I don't want to make it a mockery. I'm sorry I take that <gasps> out of there, that little last little noise. It isn't funny. It's leading people astray, and they start thinking, well, I'm in or I'm out. And if I'm in, it's guaranteed. If I'm out, what good? I can't get saved. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. That's not what the Bible teaches anywhere. And we'll talk about some of that in the next couple of weeks. But trying to realize it's creeping in. It's taking over people's thinking. Read your Bibles. Stop reading books. Or set up a, a, an agreement. I will read 10 pages of the Bible for every one page of any book that I'm reading. How's that? Okay, five pages. Two pages? I picked up some sermons by Spurgeon because he was a Calvinistic and as I'm working on that. And I'm looking at some of these and I'm going, these, these are sad. He was supposed to be this golden orator of the day. I got the actual sermon and I looked at it. It gave the verse right at the top. One of them was about faith as a gift. But it gave the verse out of Ephesians 2.8 
and there was nothing. There is no scripture mentioned in the rest of the sermon. I'm going, that's kind of odd. Now, yes, you can spend all your time, but it wasn't like he kept going back and explaining different parts of Ephesians 2.8. He went off into this whole, and I'm going, wait a minute, that, that can't be normal. So I read another one, and I read another one, and I'm going, that's how he preached all the time? No wonder people didn't grow up. That's coming to the dinner table, and mom has cut all of your food for you. Maybe put it through a baby grinder. We don't want to make you chew. That's hard on your jaws. You get tired. Puree. Mother birds can do that for their babies. If your mom did that to you, you probably wouldn't eat it if she regurgitated it onto the plate, <laughs> pre-digested and ready to go. Some baby food looks that way. Some baby food smells that way. So we made our own. We really did have a grinder, and we just we try to give our kids balanced knives. But at some point in time, you teach them how to cut, and you go, no, no, no. You can't give them a knife. They might hurt themselves. You got to let them grow up. Someday they're going to be laying you to rest. And if they don't know how to use a knife yet, there's probably some other issues that are very dangerous. Like when they're standing on your oxygen cord. And you're going, and they're going, what's wrong with dad? He, he just, why don't you just go quietly, dad? Sorry. My wife's at home with an oxygen cord, so she gets, she gets the point, and I threatened to step on it this week, but only once she got out of line. You know, it's just kind of a control thing. God is working with us, and he didn't say it was going to be easy because we sinned. We've sinned in Adam and Eve in the garden, and it brought death. It, it, it is amazing what God has done in spite of that. It is amazing what he does in the life of an individual who receives Jesus Christ. It's amazing Look at creation, knowing that it's cursed. Try explaining that to an evolutionist. But walk around and look at it. Especially in the pine. Look at how many. Go out on your, on your lot or whatever you, wherever you live and go look at the trees and look at them real carefully. And if you're colorblind like me, you can't see half of it. But, but if you recognize the death and the dying is all around us. Because it's cursed. We have no idea what it's really supposed to look like yet. But he's going to restore it. But going back to where I started, he's taking the church through trials. He will let the church go through the great tribulation because it is not God's wrath. You go check it out. The tribulation comes from the Antichrist, not from Jesus Christ. No, anyway, we can get into more of that. I thought about doing another home Bible study or something on uh, eschatology or on the book of Revelation, uh, if God permits. But, but it's, it's clearly laid out in the Word. You just need to read it and take your time to look at it. But here he's trying to point out something. He's telling you that this is coming. They're going to invade us. They're going to attack. And I think some of this is looking forward to the ultimate attack of the um, Babylonians who were going to um, come in on Israel. But he moves from the fear. Verse 16. See, I took all that time just for fear. And he comes into this whole issue of faith. This is what matters. Remember we told you back in chapter 2, verse 4, the just shall live by faith is better translated, the just shall live by faithfulness. It isn't just having the right ideas in your mind. It's the fact that those ideas in my mind really control my lifestyle. 
So I walk faithfully with God. That's how you can tell if somebody's righteous or not. Not by what they tell you from their mouth. Worst of all is preachers. You know, I, I thought about dressing up with a collar one time at a, at a costume party. And then I went, nah, I don't want to give people the wrong idea. What I wear has nothing to do with who I am on the inside. It doesn't give me any special authority to act in any special way. But they're really useful in a time of crisis out in a public meeting. Because they see you and they go, oh, there's one. Bring him over here. Let him talk to him as they're dying or give him last rites or whatever they think you do. That's not what it's about. And I kept telling you that the pastor's job is not to do your work. My job is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. You put the collars on. You walk around in public and they point at you. I'm not saying really be fake and phony and all and claim that you're something you're not. But that's who should be responding. Instead, we kind of pull back. What are we afraid of? First off, it may be like a backache. I hate that person. You know what they did to me or what they did to my family or what they've done in the community? I don't want to help them. Let them die. That's horrible. A little beyond the love your neighbor uh, command that Christ gave. Love your enemies. But you are to respond like I'm to respond. And here's a back slowly in the book coming around and saying, okay, God, you're right. I was wrong. This is the best thing for Judah. I'm waiting for it. Trembling. Blah, 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 blah. Trying to talk. Struggling in my belly. I'm struggling. So here's his faith. This is what he demonstrates. And he lays it out really clearly. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, and Bev at home needs to be quoting this without looking at it. <laughs> it's one of the verses we memorized when we were dating. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. What has he just done with six lines? Though you have Nothing. I don't mean a little bit of something. I don't mean a friend to go visit and borrow a cup of sugar from. You have nothing. And he goes into it in great detail. I separated it out between hunger with the first four. Though the fig tree should not blossom. No buds, literally, on the fig tree. When does that take place? In the nation of Israel, it's the end of March. There are no buds coming out. And the figs come out right with them. So, but they're little bitty things, and sometimes they fall off, and they use those for something special. But if you look back with the fig tree, and you understood it from their perspective, he says, in early March, or I mean the end of March, you have no buds. That's not a good sign when it comes to the fig tree. Then he moves on. He says, no fruit on the vines, no grapes on the grapevines. When does that happen? They're growing there for a while. They aren't ripe yet through the summer, and by late summer, they're ripe enough to harvest. There are none. And again, I joke about it, but it's reality. It's like living in La Pine. I have an apple tree. This year, for whatever reason, I think I saw two or three blossoms on it. Some years, it is full of blossoms. I know it's not going to produce anything. But at least there's hope. It's really pretty. I think the freezes came at just the wrong time. And so I walk around all summer. What am I looking for? Fruit. Apples. If I were Jesus, what would I do to it? Cut it down. But if I cut it down, there's nothing there. 
So it, it's at least a pretty tree, but it's doing what he's talking about. This idea, there's no grapes on the grapevines, and it's late summer, and you're not getting the harvest. The yield of the olive should fail. What if that were to happen? No olives on the olive trees. This is very late in the summer, even creeps into September, October. You see what he's doing? He's saying, we're going through the year, and there is nothing here. There is no, no blossoms on the figs, no fruit on the, on the grapevines, no olives on the olive trees. And then he says, the fields produce no food. No grain on these cultivated fields is the word he uses there. When does grain grow? If you've been anywhere in the north central states, you get winter wheat, you get so, okay, but it, well, and that would fit in if they produce some, but they're looking at barley, wheat, spelt, some of the things that they grew over there. But you would expect them to have multiple cuttings. You would expect them to have a different a, a varieties growing at different times with barley and all that was there. And he says, there's none. So he, now he's not just looking at the end of March or late summer or October, September, October. He's basically saying, there's nothing there all year. So what is Habakkuk trying to explain? You have nothing to eat. Have you ever been there? I've been at times when there was almost nothing, almost nothing to eat. I told you before I ate an onion one time because that's all I could find in the house because I had to stay home from school. Don't do that. Unless it's a Walla Walla sweet, maybe you can get away with it. <laughs> this was not. But I've never been in a situation where I had nothing, nothing. That's what God tells him is coming. And it's going to come in three waves. 605, 598, 586. So there's a lot of years in between. And bam, and bam, and bam. And it gets worse and worse as it goes. Yet, notice what he says there. Though the fig tree should not blossom. You can translate this little phrase here as when. It can be an if, but it also can be a when. This is what he's expecting to come. There's going to be a famine. Now you look back to Lamentations, chapter 2. What is Lamentations about? Lamenting. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? This is when marital bliss, after the first year, you move into Lamentations. Just kidding, just kidding. But you go over to Lamentations 2, and look what he says here. Verses 12 to 14. This is the destruction of Judah. This is the fulfillment of what he told them was coming, and especially Jerusalem. Verse 12, chapter 2. They say to their mothers, where is grain and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city. These, these are the little ones, the infants there in verse 11. Verse 13, how shall I admonish you? To what shall I compare you, O daughters of Jerusalem? To what shall I liken you as I comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and foolish visions. It's coming out of many pulpits today in America. And they have not exposed your iniquity so as to restore you from captivity, but they have seen for you false and misleading oracles. And when you move over to verse 20, he says there, See, O Lord, and look, with whom hast thou dealt thus? Should women eat their offspring? The little ones who were born healthy should priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord. That just gives you a little glimmer of what's going on when you have true famine. You eat whatever you can. Sometimes you wait for it to die. Sometimes you don't. When you look over Lamentations chapter 4, only five chapters long, 
Lamentations 4, 4 to 6. The tongue of the infant cleaves to the root of its mouth because of thirst. The little ones ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those reared in purple embrace ash pits. For the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom. Amazing. Which was overthrown as in a moment, and no hands were turned toward her. And then look over at verses 9 and 10. Better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger. For they pine away being stricken for the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate, compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Bad? Chapter 5, and you're sitting there going, I would never do that. They probably would have said that too. Chapter 5, verse 4, we have to pay for our drinking water. Our wood comes to us at a price. I don't know who's selling this. My guess is when it starts getting scarce, just like you've seen in the last year, all the prices of everything start going up. You don't have it, so you've got to buy it from somebody else. Why isn't your neighbor giving it to you? They want it, but they have extra because they're willing to sell it. If I give it away, everybody will come take it all. And I'll have nothing. So it's basically a very, very selfish move. Well, you get to die quicker. What's the problem? But he goes on here. Lost my place. Verse 4, verse 5, he says, Our pursuers are at our necks. We are worn out. There is no rest for us. We have submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. They cried out to them to defend them. They lost. Our fathers sinned in verse 7 and are no more. It is we who have borne their iniquities. You hear that? You hear that a whole bunch today if you watch any news at all. Your grandchildren are going to be paying off your debts. What they really need to say is your grandchildren are going to suffer for your sins. But they don't go there. It's, I'm not doing anything wrong. Verse 8, slaves rule over us. There is no one to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives. Because of the sword in the wilderness, our skin has become as hot as an oven because of the burning heat of famine. And you could pick up a whole lot more. That's just five little chapters of lamentation. He's lamenting what has happened. He's getting into some details, and you have no idea what you're willing to eat until you're ready to die from famine. That's what's coming. He's telling them, and yet he says to God, in spite of that, Verse 18, yet I will exult. Oh, I didn't finish the rest, the rest of 17. But he said, in spite of that, I'm going to exult, I'm going to rejoice, and we'll explain that a little bit. But he moves in the second part here. He goes from this um, famine aspect of the first four to just the fact of the livestock being gone. In the latter part, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. And again, you can go into more detail with some of this. But he's trying to bring out here, the flock cut off from the fold describes small animals. Sheep, goats, those type of animals. There are none in the animal enclosure. They're gone. What were they good for? Meat, milk, wool, hides. Oh, the whole sacrificial system. What are they going to do? There's no animals to sacrifice. He says there's no cattle in the stalls. These are your beasts of burden that involves cattle and oxen and other larger animals, and, and they're not in the stables. What are they good for? Plowing, pulling carts, again, meat, hides, sacrifices. 
The, the second part is more like your heavy equipment. The, second, the first part is more like your general tools. If we were to picture that, all of a sudden, you have no car to get anywhere. That just puts you into a much smaller circle of where you can even get your supplies from. Your, your ATM card doesn't work anymore. Your, your debit cards, your credit cards, you're useless. They're already asking for people to get marks to prove that they've been vaccinated. Can you see something coming? What's your response? You got two here, fear or faith. Who's in charge? God is. Are you really a believer? That's the first thing I would examine. Do I really know Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior? Then I can trust him to take care of me and not worry about what's coming. And then your thought is, because we had six children, was, well, what about our children? Oh, God only takes care of adults. I think I read that somewhere in the Bible. Is that what it says? He's trying to stress to them, in spite of everything being gone, wiped out, he resolves to do that one or those two things. Yet, in spite of that, in contrast to that, I will exult. And this is bringing out a specific idea. It carries the idea to celebrate the triumph. That's kind of interesting. What? What triumph? You, the word I will exult is to become jubilant with merrymaking. I'm going to celebrate. What? That everything's gone? No, no. I've been spoiled all my life anyway. You, you realize you have choices of chocolate, right? It isn't like you just get a little stick of it in World War II in some ration that they sent out to you that may have been kind of dried and hard and not as tasty. You go in and you pick your favorites. And if I, were, I could take probably the next 10 minutes just writing down what those are. We're spoiled. Sorry, it's just a book of a backache. It's not my fault. I'm just preaching what it says here. But he says, I'm going to um, exult. I could turn over to Zephaniah. And this is Zephaniah. The next one over to, from Habakkuk. The close of it, it's only three chapters long as well. Look at verse 14. Zephaniah 3.14. Here he's telling them, and Zephaniah is a contemporary of the day. And he says here in verse 14, Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. He's talking about that day. He's talking about a day that will transpire. What does the believer say about Jesus Christ in his return? We sing songs, Jesus is coming again, and whatever else we bring up about it, and we, we talk about it, but then when it comes to today, but that doesn't mean I have to share myself with anybody. That doesn't mean that, God, you can take it away. But Jesus is coming again. I'm looking forward to the day, rejoicing, set free in heaven, new bodies, all these neat things, but what about today? Are you living today like that's real? Are you rejoicing, and in this case, exulting, because rejoice is the second one? Have you become triumphant in recognition that God is in control? He says, exult in the Lord. He goes out of his way, uses the term Yahweh here. He, and I stress to you, is the covenant-keeping God. He follows through on his promises. 
Zephaniah wrote probably 10 to 20 years before Habakkuk did about some of the same issues coming on, but he gives you more of a picture of the day of the Lord and more of a picture of the success that will come from that once that day is kicked in and God is judged. But I will exult in Yahweh. Then he says in the next verse, I will rejoice in the God Elohim of my salvation. I will rejoice. I will cry out with joy. The simplest way I could describe this. In the God, in Elohim, who's Elohim? In contrast to Yahweh. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. Elohim, the creator who is all-powerful. Is how his name shows up so often. And so he says, first off, God's going to keep his promises. He will deliver us. If you're in Christ, you have those promises. I will never leave you or forsake you. You mean even through the great tribulation? Well, except for that. Is, is there an exception clause written into any of that? No, I will be with you. I'm going to use you. You're going to witness the people. People are going to come to Christ during that time. Not very many, because few there be that find it. And he said in Luke 17, will he find faith on the earth when he returns? Big, serious problem. But some will come to know him, just like they did in the Holocaust. As Christians were mixed in with the Jews, they were able to lead people to Jesus and then to die with them. Does that excite you? Does that make you exult as, as he describes it here and, and bring out this whole idea of celebrating the triumph? Does it, does it make you um, rejoice, cry out with joy? God is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. God is Elohim, the creator who is all-powerful of my salvation, my deliverance, my rescue that he promised and he brought up in Habakkuk 3.13. He said, thou didst go forth for the salvation of thy people, for the salvation of thine anointed. Thou didst strike the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. That's sad. Those are people going to hell, but they will be judged because they've rejected the Savior. They've rejected the opportunity. So he closes off with this last part here. When he says in 19, the Lord God is my strength, he throws another name in. He goes from Yahweh to Elohim, and now it's Yahweh Adonai. Adonai is equivalent of master, is, a, is the simplest way we could bring it out here. It's Lord typically translated that way, but here, because Yahweh's there, the Hebrew does funny things in the American Standard Translation, New American Standard, but it's, it's Lord, it's Master, it's Sovereign, it's the, it's the idea that He superintends everything. He's bringing in all three of His names here, because they all carry a lot of weight, and it's the Lord God, the Master, the Sovereign, the one who's in authority, who is my strength. Who's going to stop God? That's the only reason I can exult and rejoice, is because I recognize who He is. And what has he done for him? He's moved from this problem of famine and no livestock to this perception he's decided to focus in on, and it's God. And he's doing it before the invasion ever even hits. And he says he's my strength, and he's made my feet like hinds' feet. He sets me up securely. He makes me sure-footed. And the idea behind this isn't the typical one you see. I see it in a lot of poems and songs, but this really is describing the ability to escape to the high ground. What's God going to do with the righteous when this day of trouble comes? He's going to allow them to escape. You ever watch shows on mountain goats or on, I don't know what, which I'm going to say the wrong ones, but the critters who are sure-footed on the mountains? 
We're, we're familiar with mountain goats, but there's a bunch of them around the world. What are they doing up there? You ever, you ever see one of those um, tigers or, or um, um, there are a variety of different types? They're basically all of them look like mountain lions, but they're all different colors. Or a leopard, or all that field. But they're trying to go after them in different locations. And the, the animal just goes, right on up, and you're looking at that going, how did it do that? This is what he's describing. And you're going to look back, and we're going to talk. Okay, let's get together in the New Jerusalem. Let's have a reunion of sorts, a Cascade Bible Church reunion. And we're going to sit down and we go, how'd it go for you? And we're going to spend the next million years sharing all of the individual stories of what God did for you. Maybe. That's after you spent the first million years sitting at the feet of Jesus and just awestruck. Or laying down because you can't even, you can't even get up. It, it is so impressive to realize who God is. He made my feet like hind's feet. And he's trying to bring this out. And it's a hiffil. You like hiffils, right? Pat here. I, knew, I thought I saw her face. It's a hiffil. He says, he causes me to walk. And you could translate that. He causes me to march. When you look up the word walk here and you find out where it's located, it's in the Hebrew lexicon. He's he's talking about the exiles who are returning. You you not only gave me the escape of the hind's feet, but you made me walk on my high places. This can be translated on the higher ground, but it can also be translated on the battlefields. You get the picture of what Habakkuk is finally getting to? My deliverer is coming. And he's not going to lose. My deliverer knows everything about me, and he's not just going to say, well, well, years of tribulation here, whatever it's going to last. Year and a half, two years, whatever it might be. It's limited. He cuts it short. He amputates it in Matthew 24, 22. Because if he didn't, none of the elect would survive. And he's got a purpose for those select people to serve him going into the millennium. Not to get out of suffering If you haven't been brought up and been allowed to suffer, you're in a bad place. And that's why they too often, I'm going to get in trouble for using the term, but the term today is snowflakes. And that's the problem. They've had everything done for them. They've had everything given to them. And now they're handing out. You're going to get another, what do they call those, money give-outs? Stimulus. Is that still coming? Do you... you, Oh, the kids are getting them. Everybody's getting them. Okay, we, we won't get into all of it, but, but we, we recognize they're bribing you. They're, they're dumbing you down. They're, they're saying, oh, you, you need the government. We will take care of you. We will be your God. They're going to turn on you. As soon as the Antichrist gets his position and authority from God, when the restrainer, which I understand to be Michael the archangel, Clearly lay it out. Look up Michael the archangel in scripture, especially Daniel 12. When Michael steps back, not from what I heard on the radio this morning, the restrainer does not restrain sin. He restrains the Antichrist. Check that one out some more. Read your Bibles. But it was a preacher today. He kept going back to that. Oh, he's restraining sin. He's restraining sin. No, he isn't. If that was the case, look at your world today. How are we doing? That restrainer is pretty puny. It's the Antichrist. It's that once and for all final individual who's being held back, especially regarding Israel. That's what he wants. Why do you think he's setting up his temple in Jerusalem? Why do you think he's going to call himself God? And you go into all of that. I'm running out of time. I'm always running out of time. But he's bringing out in this closing words here in chapter 19, 
not only are you going to deliver me and allow me to be on those high places safe and secure, you are going to give me success. I am going to return into Jerusalem. I'm going to be successful on the high ground, on the battlefield. Describes this triumph that they're going to receive. Victory, dominion gets brought up when you look up this word in the Hebrew lexicon. And it's possession of the land. As you look up a couple passages, I don't have time to read. I'll give them to you if you want. Isaiah 2, 2 and 3. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Zechariah 14 again, great book. 9 to 11. Last chapter of Zechariah, verses 9 to 11. Jerusalem is going to be raised up. Why is that? Well, you have to go find out. And then he closes off here. He says with this proclamation for the choir or the musical director with stringed instruments or on my string instruments. It's intended to be for this individual who was the overseer, the superintendent of the music to play this message in worship in Israel. Why? Someone needs to write a song from Habakkuk. Why? Because you've got to get it in your head like you have with many songs you grew up with, if you grew up in church. And they come back, and they come back, and they come back. Because when the days get really dark and go down, you need a song reminding you from Scripture, God is in control, God protects the righteous, God will return the righteous. In spite of how bad it may look, in spite of the fact that COVID was nothing compared to what it's going to be like, you will not be meeting in church. You will be risking your life like many countries do today that are anti-Christ in the, in the way that they present things. That people gather and they bring one in. Ten minutes apart, another one shows up. Another 15 minutes, another one shows up. It may take them two or three hours just to get a small group of people gathered in one location so they can sing and be taught. And when they leave, they have to leave the same way. You ready? Are you getting built up? Are you getting... Um, matured and, and prepared to serve Christ when there's no pastor around? When there's no church around? Or are we going to be lazy snowflakes and be trembling in our boots? If you do not know Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior, that is the main thing. That's the whole thing. That starts the focus you're going to have on God is through his son, Jesus Christ. Once you've locked on to that focus and he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, then you can move on and grow in your faith and not be living in fear. The more you've suffered in your life, the more prepared you are for what's coming. Because you understand pain comes and goes. But my loyalty to Jesus Christ is what really matters. Peter messed up. Three times he denied him right there where he could hear him. And he went on and wept bitterly. Because Peter was saved. We're going to be tempted to lie and cover up and turn people in. Turn me in. Start with me. Don't pick on anybody else. Do you, you know any Christians? And when, when they turn the, the screws on you, say, yeah, Jack Ebner. And then when, you, when they go off to get me, call me up so I can get by myself so they don't take my whole family with them. But what am I going to do in jail? In between torture. Witness. What are you going to do to the torturers? Love them. 
Am I saying that because that's an easy thing? No, you can't do it apart from walking by the Spirit. My wife right now is at home going like this. You already ended your message. Why are you starting another one? See, I can even see her through the camera. But, but it, it's the reality. You need Christ. You must depend on Christ. You must walk with him. You must imitate him. It's critical. Don't water it down. This is my last message on the back end. What do you expect me to do? I've got to finish off with the admonition. If you don't know the Lord today, please let us help you. There's plenty of tracks over there that can guide you that way. If you do know him, get busy. Stop sitting around like a snowflake that's going to melt. And get, become hard water. Maybe that's what I could say. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness. We carry Bibles around with us. We can listen to preachers on the radio. We can read books that encourage us to do the right things. We're sitting in church. There's so many places in the world that aren't even doing this or are afraid to. Lord, make, help us not take this for granted. Help us not to push it aside and say, well, someday I'll get back to church or whatever it may be. It's like someday I'll get back to you. Help us to put you first and let everything take a second place to where sometimes we say yes to you and no to everything else. Thank you for your son. Thank you for our salvation. May there be no one leaving this room today who doesn't know you and make that decision to receive your son. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.